going to read a very important passage from the Bible, Genesis chapter 1, beginning in verse 26. You might know Genesis 1 is about the creation of the heavens and the earth, and it's described as having taken place in six days, and on the sixth day of the creation of the universe, God created the human race. The passage I'm about to read is uh, called by theologians the cultural mandate, which I always found a little bit confusing, but it simply means it's the, the first command given in the Bible, the first command given directly to the human race. And uh, there actually are a number of commands in Genesis chapter 1, but they're, they're all worded as, let there be, which is a third-person command. And the first one that is actually stated directly is in uh, this passage in which we were commanded to fill this earth and subdue it, and that is often called the cultural mandate or the creation mandate, the command given to the human race to create culture, to spread throughout the earth, create civilization under the rule of God. So read carefully with me, beginning in verse 26, Genesis chapter 1. Then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them. And God said to them, be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth and subdue it, and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. And God said, Behold, I have given you every plant yielding seed that is on the face of all the earth, and every tree with seed in its fruit. You shall have them for food, and to every beast of the earth, and to every bird of the heavens, and to everything that creeps on the earth, everything that has the breath of life, I have given every green plant for food. And it was so. And God saw everything that he had made, and behold, it was very good, and there was evening, and there was morning, the sixth day. Let's pray. As we bow before you, Father, we acknowledge that all of us come into this room with so many different things in our minds and on our hearts. We have so many different responsibilities and opportunities and joys and sorrows that we pass through every week. And it's difficult on a Sunday morning not to bring all of those things with us and in times when we sit quietly, not to just ruminate on those things and have them constantly go through our minds. But we do acknowledge that there surrounds your throne mysterious creatures, angels apparently, who cry out, holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. Heaven and earth are full of his glory. And we thank you that we have the opportunity to enter before you through the blood of your son, Jesus, into your very presence where those things go on even now. We pray that in your presence you would quieten our hearts. You would help us to concentrate on your word. You would teach us your way and open our minds to understand the things that we find and move our hearts to obey it. We pray this in Jesus' name. 
Amen. Well, I was a child in the 1950s. For those of you who are young, that was after the flood. <laughs> and uh, my family was only mildly religious. We went to church once or twice a month while I was growing up. But there was one thing that stands out in my memory, and that is that Sunday was a slightly different day from the rest of the week in my family. Even though we didn't go to church every week, uh, we always ate in the dining room, the formal dining room, rather than in the kitchen. My mother prepared a special dinner, and uh, we ate in the late afternoon, and my brother and I had to wear a coat and tie to the dinner table, and my sisters had to wear dresses. Now, I think children today would chafe under that kind of uh, regimen, but at the time, it was not uncommon for people to do that, and I remember feeling like it was a special day. I mean, there was something special about it that we were recognizing. And the formality wore off by the time I was in high school, but the fact of Sunday being slightly different, having a formal dinner in the afternoon continued as long as I lived at home as I was growing up. And all of that sounds very old-fashioned today, but in the America of the 1950s and early 1960s, that, that wasn't uncommon. There were no organized uh, sport events, sporting events on Sundays. There were no school activities that ever occurred on Sundays. All stores were closed when I was a child. Uh, family programming was on TV. And those of us who didn't belong to those poor Baptists who had to go to church in the evening <laughs> knew that uh, uh, Walt Disney was on Sunday evening at 7 o'clock. And Walt Disney himself, the old man, would introduce the program that was on for the night. Now, I, I later came to realize that what I experienced in my childhood was sort of the tail end, the death tremors, I would call it, of a long, slow cultural shift in the way people viewed family and church and viewed Sunday. It's kind of like, if you can think of this illustration, think of a beautiful piece of wooden furniture, and, and it's varnished brilliantly and has been cared for, but the wood underneath has rotted away and all that's left is the varnish, kind of a thin veneer. And if you could picture something like that, you know that that really wouldn't do you any good. It wouldn't hold you up any longer. And my family, having been in the United States for generations, having come from northern Europe, had passed on certain ideas that at one time had been connected with a robust, solid, personal Christian faith. But the personal, solid, substantial Christian faith had long before in my family worn away, rotted away. And what was left was just the thin veneer of varnish. For us, there wasn't much furniture underneath. Church and faith weren't that important. We didn't talk about it that much in our home. But the, the less important things that had at one time been connected with that Sunday dinner that was special had remained. Now, my children don't know any of that. Uh, they don't have any idea of what it means. And, and the more I thought about it, the more I realized that, that I was part of just the death tremors of something that had once been extremely important in the Western world, and particularly in American life. It had taken centuries to take root, and once it had taken root, it was so powerful that even though the robustness of the Christian faith probably died 
oh, 75 years before I was born in my family. What remained, remained on long after what was substantial underneath it and why it had come about to begin with was long gone. The basic conviction that is based on this passage, it comes from the Bible, and it's the idea that um, the family is the central, most basic unit of society, and even the church is just an extension of what goes on in the family home. The, the, the outward form and the Sunday things had to do with the Sabbath, but that's not really what the issue was. My family would have never talked about Sunday being the Sabbath or had any idea that at one time that had been something very powerful. But um, what it really was rooted on was not so much the Sabbath as it was the idea that the home is the central place in which faith is rooted. And every Christian home should be a church in miniature. And Sunday was the Christian day of worship. And in history, particularly a hundred and more years ago, the family and the families in a community altered their normal schedule in order to adopt, adapt to the, the Christian day of worship. And so the meal was in a different setting. Families went to church, and there weren't other activities that you engaged in. And even though that foundational reason died out, the cultural things stayed on for a while. And what I want to do is I want to talk about the foundation the, the furniture that was underneath, and it really comes from this passage, often called, as I mentioned, the creation mandate, the first command given to the human race. Now, we have a core value as a church. We actually have seven, and I believe this is the fifth one. Um, five of them were, were written down early on by the leaders of the church, like in 1986, 1987, somewhere in there. Two of them were added later. I don't remember when, but this is one that was added later. It wasn't really part of our thinking in the very beginning, but it is uh, about family. I don't know if you can turn something on. And There we go. There's the statement. Since family is central... To God's plan for the world, we focus on equipping family members to delight in and fulfill their God-given responsibilities. And I'd like to draw on this passage and a couple of others to think about, especially the first part of that sentence, everything else depends on it, family is central to God's plan for the world. We do not believe that in our culture. It's not taught any longer in our schools and yet it is rooted in Scripture. It's one of the most foundational, basic ideas the Bible contains. It's found on the sixth day of creation, the day in which God created the first two humans, and it grows from that point throughout the Bible in ways I'd like us to see. So I'd like to draw three things from this, from this creation mandate, three things about family as being central to God's plan for the world. The first thing is this. The creation mandate tells us that family is the central uh, building block, or is the building block on which all of society is built. Family is the building block of society. It's the most basic unit that everything else is built on. There's nothing more basic as a unit out of which we form the world than family. And this comes from this passage. So God created man in his image. In the image of God, he created him. Now, if you're a young person, I want you to note that might be a bit confusing because today when we use the word man, we use it to mean male usually. 
And that is not how it's being used here in our culture, our language, at least historically, has used the word man to refer to mankind, or what we would say today, humankind, the human race. And that's how it's being used here. And when it uses the word him in the second line, male and female, he created him. It's not referring to the male only, as though he didn't also create the female in his image. It means humankind. Humanity looked at as one person. And all of that is made clear in the third line, male and female, he created them. Humankind is made up of male and female, two different genders, and together we comprise humanity, the human race. This is the first verse in the Bible, inspired by God himself, telling us how he made us. And then the first command, and God blessed them and said to them, be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth and subdue it, and have dominion over all the other creatures. Now, Genesis makes it clear that we humans were created for fellowship with God. We were to reflect that fellowship with God by imaging him, representing him. When it says that we are the image of God, it pictures an image. Forbidden later in the Bible to make images of God, and yet human beings are called the image of God. We represent God in some important way. And in this passage, the way in which we represent God is twofold. Something is given to us a command to do something that none of the other creatures are commanded to do with the same intentionality, and that is be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth and subdue it. This is God's work in Genesis chapter 1. He creates life and he rules over life. And so he gives to his image on the earth the vice regents, the first king and queen, he gives to them the same commission which he fulfills himself when he says create life, have children, make generations, build families, and rule over all of life. Now, that rulership was meant to be done under the leadership of God. We were to rule as his vice regents, vice kings and queens on the earth. But ruling and creating life makes us or shows us to be the image of God doing this under his authority. And what that tells us is that family is the most basic building block on which all society is built. In the beginning of the human race, God commanded our first two parents to produce children, to form and multiply families, families that would spread. And as they spread throughout the earth, we were to rule over it as God's representatives. All of this, of course, was stated before the fall. And this mandate requires that we spread civilization or culture as we go. And the Bible unfolds that story from this verse. From these verses the race begins to spread. And as they spread, you read Genesis chapter 4, you have the beginnings of all of culture in Genesis 4. You have the starting point for science and industry and agriculture and music and the arts, all of those things. As families begin to spread, they begin to create in the communities that they advance as they spread throughout the earth. And the bottom line is that family is the source from which all civilization springs. God set his whole plan in motion, not just by creating a man, but by creating one man and one woman, giving giving them to each other in fruitful union and commanding them through that union to spread throughout the earth and to rule it. Family is the building block of society. And because that's true, we have to commit ourselves to that belief that was at one time the genuine belief of most people in the Western world. And it isn't anymore, but family is the most basic building block 
of society. Whenever we become aware of things like that, we need to ask ourselves, is this what we believe? Are we seeking to live out this kind of truth? And you might think, well, it's kind of hard not to. <laughs> I mean, if you're in a family, you are required to do something. But I mean more than that. I mean more than just the fact that family exists and that you are a part of one. I, I mean the fact that this is God's fragile plan for all human relationships. You see, the problem is that the, the mandate, the command, was given in the context of two perfect human beings. But as you read on in the Bible, you come to chapter 3 and they fall into sin. And certain things are set in motion as a result of sin, as we see. And it actually is after the advent of sin into the human race, sin like an infection that infects us as individuals, infects the heart and spreads throughout our person. And then it's also a societal disease that because we are now sinners relating to each other, it spreads throughout society. The first child is born after the advent of sin. But it's important to note the cultural mandate is, is given again in Genesis chapter 9 when Noah comes out of the ark. And humanity has a fresh start in the unfolding story of redemption. And when they do that, God says again, be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth and subdue it. This is a command given to the race, even in sin. And every person is a part of fulfilling it, whether they are Christian families or they are families of some other religion. In any case, they live, we all live under this mandate given by God. And the, the question is, will we adopt this as our own attitude? My family, whether I'm a child or a parent, my family is the basic building block of society. That's what God asks you to accept. A young couple just getting married has more opportunity to put into practice what that means than, say, a grandmother who raised her children before she even came to faith in Christ she will have much less opportunity and find it more difficult to adopt that attitude and that pattern of life. And yet that's what God says. Whether you are a person who is just starting out, a young person, or you're a person moving towards the end, what does it mean for you to commit yourself to the fact that your family ought to function, at least in God's design, as a worshiping community, the most basic unit of all society? After all, church is just an extension of the family. It's a group of families meeting together, doing what the family is meant to be and to do alone as well. That's the first thing. Second thing uh, we find in Scripture is that family is not only the building block of society, it is also the basis of all human relationships. It's the basis of all human relationships. Since society is built up from one couple, it follows that family is the basis of all human relationships. There weren't any other relationships that could have, they could have been based on except the first two parents. But what I mean is that that holds true even today. A child born, a little child, into a family sees in the face of his mother or his father the beginning of everything else he will experience in life. You, as a parent, are the prototype of the doctor, the lawyer, the garbage man the judge, you know, whatever it is you can think of. You are the beginning of that. And the Bible does not contain any commands, for example, to, to make cities, to form governments. There's no place in the Bible where it says, now you need to have a government. 
because all the government is is an extension of the family as the family spread and they had a portion, an area to govern, to take care of. They had to establish some kind of order and so government naturally arose. Family is what it arose from. That's why government has no inherent authority according to the Bible. All authority is rested in the family and by extension it's given to others in order to rule life. Now, there was a book I read a number of years ago. I remember my parents had it. Some of you heard of it. I guess it was made into a play. Robert Fulgham wrote a book called All I Really Need to Know I Learned in Kindergarten. And uh, it's a pretty clever title. The problem is it's wrong. All you ever really need to know you learned at home. Um, that's where you learn all the most basic lessons that kindergarten at its best begins to cement for you in certain ways. And so parents are not only the pattern of everything else that's experienced in life, everything that follows after it, but they are also the prototype of all human relationships and all authority which grows out of them. Now, some of you would have grown up memorizing a catechism. Probably most of you didn't anymore, but there are different kinds of things that were written. Most of them were written in the 1500s, 1600s that were used for a long time to help people learn about the Christian faith, particularly to help children. One of those is the Heidelberg Catechism. It's the one I quote most frequently. And uh, some of you, I don't know if I ever quoted this one, but there's 127 questions and answers. At one point in the Catechism, it goes through the Ten Commandments, lists each of them and, and tells you about them. But it's so interesting what it says on the Fifth Commandment. What is God's will for us in the Fifth Commandment? Who knows what the Fifth Commandment says? You can guess it, maybe. Honor your father and your mother, right. That's the fifth commandment. It says, what is God's will for us in the fifth commandment? Here's the answer. That I honor, love, and be loyal to my father and mother and all those in authority over me. That I obey and submit to them as is proper when they correct and punish me. And also that I be patient with their failings. For through them, God chooses to rule us. Now, what's interesting is you can look at any of the the catechisms are written at that time, and there are different ones, the Westminster Shorter Catechism and Longer Catechism, and you know, there's just a number of different things that people have used in different churches. Every time you get to the exposition of the Fifth Commandment, they all say something like this, and what they say is that this command does not just have to do with parents, honor your father and your mother. This command has to do with all authority in life. I mean, note how I, I honor and love and be loyal to my father and mother and all those in authority over me. And why do I do this? Well, even though they are failing, all those in authority over me, this is how God chooses to rule us. In fact, it views life as a series of authorities beginning with father and mother and ultimately ending with God. And the function of a parent who recognizes that he or she is not always right, as the catechism says, the child should be patient with our failings. We don't always know what's right. But the, the, ultimately, our task is to point them to God, the ultimate authority over life. It doesn't matter any longer with my children who are grown. They're not going to call me and ask me whether they're permitted to do something any longer. The whole question is whether they see some authority in life greater than themselves who has a right to rule over life. And that's what the fifth commandment is all about. And all the basic lessons of life, whether it's submission to authority, personal integrity and honesty, the use of money, teamwork, carrying out assignments, initiation, on and on and on. All of those things find their starting point in the family in which a person is raised. 
Now, if you're a parent, that ought to be a little bit overwhelming to you. It's like the Apostle Paul said in a different context, who is sufficient for these things? I mean, who could ever think about raising a being's children who are actually made in the image of God and and raising them with any kind of confidence when we don't have insight into their inner workings and we also are riddled with with sin ourselves. Nevertheless, that's the command God gave to us and he requires that uh, it requires that we would trust in him and rely upon him as we do that and not view everything that we say as it just goes because I'm right, I'm the father. We would seek to be humble about it and yet use the authority that we've been given. One important way you should live out this fact is you need to see yourself as having authority if you're a parent. And you need to see your partner as your, your spouse as being your partner in God's work. I think that's so important. And it's not only important if you are happen to be a Christian who's married to another Christian who is seeking to follow the Lord. That certainly makes this kind of thing a lot easier. But this principle doesn't simply apply among Christians. You need to see your spouse as your partner in um, seeking to apply your shepherding responsibilities in raising your children. The cultural mandate was given to the entire race, and it's being fulfilled throughout the world by all kinds of people. It's being done, riddled with sin, I suppose, in most places, but it is being done. I was raised in only a mildly religious home. My parents, nevertheless, were God's tool in my life to shape me in many ways. Now, they told me things were wrong. I was reflecting yesterday at a burial service I did that I was taught by my father that this life is all there is. When you die, that's it. Your body is just chemicals. There's no soul. There's nothing eternal. When you die, you just dissolve back into chemicals, and you no longer are. It's as though you never were. And you know what? That's wrong. That's so basically wrong. It colors all of life. But that doesn't mean he wasn't God's tool to guide me in many ways in life. If you have a spouse, you need to uh, see him or her as your partner in seeking to help you do that. And your work of seeking to help your home be a place where Christ is honored isn't completely dependent on the spiritual state of your spouse, though it will be easier. And obviously, if you're in a Christian marriage, you should consciously adopt this attitude. Your spouse is your partner with you to seek to shepherd these children to live under God's rule. That's a project you should do together. And then lastly, the scriptures tell us that family is the foundation of redemption. Family is the foundation of redemption. Now, this one I need to explain because it's not uh, crystal clear. But what I mean is that God's creation of the first two humans in the family was the foundation out of which the whole story of redemption grew and the Redeemer came. Here's what I'd like you to do. Uh, Look at, uh, in fact, I think I have it up here. Genesis chapter 3 and verse 15. You don't need to turn to it. But in Genesis 3, you have the description of the fall into sin and the results of the fall. And the first result is a curse that's given unto the serpent. And in the curse on the serpent is uh, hidden the first promise of redemption that the Bible contains. God says to the serpent, I will put enmity between you and the woman 
and between your offspring and her offspring, he, her offspring, shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. Now, that might sound all very obscure, but the idea is that the offspring of the woman, some child born of the female part of the human race, is going to be the one who will bruise the head of the serpent. And that's a figure of speech meaning to crush the head. It's referring to a fatal blow. He will do a final death blow, give final death blow to Satan, the one who brought about the temptation. And at the same time, and in the process of that happening, the child of the woman will experience a non-fatal blow, one that is not lasting, which obviously refers to the resurrection. You shall bruise his heel, referring to something that might hurt but not kill a person. It's the first promise of redemption in the Bible. And so immediately after the first sin, right when it, had been, uh, when it occurred, and God began the oracles of curse to say, here's what life will be like, he also gave a promise, and the promise was, I will send a redeemer who will be born of a woman, and uh, the, 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 the punishment that was given at the fall is softened by the assurance that the consequences wouldn't last forever. God said that from the beginning. The consequences won't last forever. There'll be a redeemer who will be born out of the human race, specifically the seed or descendant of Eve. Now, as the Bible unfolds, it unfolds that whole story. And Jesus, in fact, was the, the seed of a woman. It says, as Paul stated in the New Testament, when the fullness of time had come, when everything was ripe, it was exactly ready, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those under the law. Now, why does he say born of a woman? Isn't that obvious? Uh, everyone is born of a woman. But in this case, it's seen as the fulfillment of the first promise. So he states it, born of a woman, just as God said the Redeemer would be. Now, because family is the foundation of God's story of redemption, everything flows out of the family. Even the Redeemer was born out of a human family in the way that God had designed. Then you need to adopt what the cultural mandate assumes, that is, you need to adopt the attitude that my family, my home, is a place where Christ rules. My home is the church, the people of God in miniature form. You need to build that into the family, the fabric of your family life. If your children are young, it's a lot easier to do that. But if you're going to do that, one of the things you have to do is to put yourself in the same place, under the lordship of Christ. Not just your children, but your home. One of the ways that we found that difficult is something that might only apply to us. I'm not commending this as something everyone has to do. But when our children were small, we decided, uh, when our oldest started to go to school, that uh, we were not going to allow them to watch television from Sunday night through Thursday night. So Friday night, Saturday, Sunday, uh, they could watch television. But Sunday night, television was turned off, and uh, we wanted them to do other things. Now, we would relax that during the summer. And then every fall, it would be like, you are the worst parents in the world. You're thinking of new ways to torture us. No one has ever done this in the history of the world. I can't believe you're doing it to us. Every year, it was the same way. 
you know. I found out recently Ben at his wedding was telling the other kids how great it was to be the youngest child in the family. He said, you, you never knew, but I got to come home from kindergarten and watch the A-team while I ate my lunch. <laughs> I never knew that either, that, you know. Um, but, you know. So we weren't completely consistent, but uh, we tried to be. But the thing that's interesting is our children are grown now, and they all say that was one of our better rules, you know, in life. There were worse ones that they still are unhappy with, but that one, uh, <laughs> that was one of our better ones. And they, none of our kids watch very much television. Hallelujah. Now, not everyone has to do exactly that. What I'm saying is one of the things we found difficult was we realized when we, when we made that rule or after we made it that that needed to apply to us. So I couldn't say, no watching television during the week, but I'm going to watch the news. It didn't, wasn't right. And, and I couldn't say, no watching television during the week except after you go to bed because pretty soon someone would get up to get a drink of water and, you know, they'd come downstairs and find out, hey, what are mom and dad doing? They're watching television. And so... You know, we had to apply it to ourselves as well, but that's how it worked. We wanted to live under the lordship of Christ, and while that's not a command given in the Bible, it was one that we found wise just for reasons of our own, and, and so we had to apply it to ourselves. And that's the point. To put your home under the lordship of Christ, you need to do exactly what that requires, and that is put your own life under that. If you're not going to let your children watch certain television programs at home, I have to tell you, I think it's best if you don't watch them either. If you're not going to let them go to certain movies, and obviously there's an age where you stop controlling that, but if you're not going to let them go to certain movies, you need to not go to those movies either. I mean, it's not just something that applies to children. If it's wise for them, it applies to you as well. Now, perhaps you didn't raise your children in a Christian home, and, and after your children were raised, you became a Christian, and, and you're looking back and seeing all kinds of things that you didn't do that you wish you'd done. Well, that doesn't change the fact that Christ wants to rule in your home, and you need to seek to apply that in whatever way you can. And I know that that's difficult. I, I know how children whose parents have become Christians, or brothers and sisters, all of that, how they can view you, I think... Uh, my parents waited their whole lives trying to see when, you know, this Christian thing was going to wear off of Tommy, and it <laughs> didn't happen. But you can do things like praying before meals, even if you never did that before, or reading the Bible after dinner. You know, if done wisely, those things can have real impact even on grown children. You realize that you don't have control over what they are doing, but in your home, when they visit, or when they're there, you can seek to put your home under the lordship of Christ, and that applies differently to different people. And you may be the means of bringing them to faith. That has happened many times in people's experiences. Family is central to God's plan for the world. It's the basic building block of society. Every relationship you will ever conceive of in life flows out of it and what you first experienced in your earliest childhood. And it's the way in which God redeemed the world it's through the spreading of the race and the coming of the Redeemer. And because that's true, we should seek to be the kind of church in which we put ourselves under the lordship of Christ, which means making our families the most basic unit where Christ is Lord. Let's pray. Again, Father, we thank you for the fact that you give us the freedom to be here today and 
You give us the freedom as well to do in our families the things that we want to do that will honor you. We know that we're, we live in a certain culture and there are certain expectations and things that we have grown up with that, that we put into practice so naturally without thinking about them, but we pray, I pray for my brothers and sisters that you would arrest our attention. You'd stop us at times and help us to think, why is it we're doing that or not doing that? What is it we should do that would honor you? Pray that you'd help us to do that. I know that people are trying to apply the kind of things I've talked about this morning in all kinds of different settings with children who are rebellious, spouses who have no use for you, all kinds of settings. And that uh, it's not easy always to put these things into practice, but please make us the kind of people in which we can help each other to think through those things and our group leaders to be the kind of people who can help people to to seek to apply your word to the setting in which they find themselves. And that we would concentrate more on being the kind of people that you want us to be, and that is the kind of parents and children and siblings and friends and neighbors that you want us to be more than on making everyone else conform to what we think you want them to do. Help us to do that, we pray, Father, in Jesus' name. Amen.